Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Young. If I haven't met you before, I'm pastor here at New Life, and it's great to be with you this morning. We've had some uh, pretty crazy rainy weather these days. I don't know if any of you guys have been caught outside when uh, your laundry's been outside. You know, hopefully, you guys have been okay. It's La Nina uh, is what I'm hearing. Uh, it's being referred to. And there's a... Uh, has anyone caught their first mozzie yet? No? You guys have been safe? Yeah? We caught our first mozzie the other day. Um, but thankfully, the rain and uh, hopefully the mozzies have been kept back for our Super Sunday lunch, which is happening right afterwards. Um, it'll be a great way for us to practice welcoming hearts, uh, especially as we look towards uh, Christmas. So today's sermon title is Unilateral Blessing, Communal Sin. Um, before I get to the sermon, though, why don't I pray for us? Uh, Father, as we prayed in pre-service prayer, uh, when we number the blessings, um, how can we even begin to number them? It's like looking out into the night sky and trying to count the stars. Um, truly, you are a God who blesses us endlessly. You're a good Father, and you love us. We thank you, Lord, that you invite us into your household as sons, as daughters, uh, through the work of your son, Jesus. When we think about it, we can't help but to praise your name, to look to you, and just um, sing out of how great you are, God. And we want to sing out, Lord, and we want to be reminded of your goodness again and again. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to praise your name. We pray, Lord, that you would Fill our hearts with thanksgiving, especially as we look towards uh, Christmas time, as we anticipate uh, the coming of your son, Jesus, and the coming again of your son, Jesus. Uh, we pray that you would be with us throughout this service, that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit. Give us great wisdom and open up our ears that we might be able to hear you, open up our eyes that we might be able to see what it is that you're doing in our lives, and open our hearts, Lord, that we might receive the word into them that it might spring forth a fruit 30, 60, 100 fold, and that we might be able to welcome in um, other brothers and sisters into your family, into your household, God, just as you've welcomed us. Pray that you will be with us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When I think about uh, Christmas time, I think about the duality of man. You know, I think about just the dualism that kind of exists inside of a lot of us. Um, I remember as a child, watching all of these Christmas specials, you know, I don't know if it's the same in Australia, I know in America it was just so many Christmas specials, felt like anywhere you turned it was just a Christmas movie, a movie about giving and sharing and the film centers around this, you know, little child that I can relate to as a child growing up and he's hearing from everyone around them, you know, don't be selfish, make sure you share and then they end up inviting in the orphan or the stranger and having a big Christmas dinner together. I'll be like, oh, just taken by it, just seeing the Christmas spirit. And then I would write up my Christmas list of everything that I wanted for myself. You know, who cares about anyone else? I'm an only child. And so it was just all about me, 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 me. You know, and I don't know if it was the same for you guys growing up or perhaps you were uh, not sinners and it was just me. Now, is there a hint of this in the call of Abram here in our first passage from Genesis 12? You know, we read Genesis 12 there seems to be this focus on one man, Abram. You know, the Lord is calling Abram. And it says here in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. 
and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You It's about one man, he's talking to Abram, but then God starts talking about others, those who will bless Abram, those who treat him with contempt, all the peoples on earth, the Bible tells us. And that you know, word for people there that's uh, translated there at people, it comes from a Hebrew word, mishefa, and it can be translated as nation or race or family, tribe or clan. So not just peoples, but people groups, okay, a bunch of people. But whatever the translation, have you ever really thought about this call of Abram as it's written here in your Bibles? I don't think it's culturally normal for us today to think that a blessing that comes our way will end up blessing other people around us. You know, I think if you've been Christian for a long time, perhaps you do think that way, but you don't necessarily think that you receive a tax return and then suddenly it's like, okay, now who can I bless? Who can I take out? Who can I give things to? What's the interconnection between blessings and togetherness that we see in this passage? Or like the flip side, between curses and relationships. What's the relationship that we see there? God's view of blessing is in direct contrast to our cultural norm today, to our modern view that's colored by individualism. You know, the movements of individualism that have happened over the last century or last few centuries, it colors the way that we think about blessings. So consider even your salvation. If you are a Christian, if you consider yourself to be a Christian, consider your salvation or this life that you do with God. What do we normally talk about when we think about our time with God? We tend to think in terms of a one-to-one individualistic relationship with God. We tend to think about my personal time with God, you know, my quiet time with God, my spiritual life is my business. And I don't want other people telling me how to spend my spiritual life with God. I definitely don't want, to tell, don't want to tell them I'm not spending a lot of time with God, and then they can, you know, they can tell us what to do. From the beginning of our series, Christmas Together, we've seen, though, how the Bible presents human life in terms of relationships. It doesn't just name just people by themselves. It's always presented in the context of relationships. In week one, we saw in a sermon called Flesh, Bone, and Body, we looked at the relationship between man and woman in the garden and how it points forward to the ultimate relationship between Jesus and the church, you know, which we now enjoy. Last week, we looked at how a humanistic approach to unity, it's always going to result in violence, in oppression, in assimilation, and only in Jesus do we find true unity through diversity and welcoming and love. Human life is defined by mutual relationships. They say no man is an island. They say all these different things about individualism, about loneliness, about being hermits. Each person that's introduced throughout the Bible is talked about in terms of their relationships with others as well. Genealogies, our favorite part of the Bible, genealogies figure heavily into the Bible. And you see generation to generation, how the people of earth turn out. You know, who begat who, and then who became this people group that, you know, most probably oppresses Israel. It begins with the first relationship between man and woman. We see that. We observe that together. We've observed that several times throughout this year, if you've been with us. And then the two as parents towards their children, 
And in these children towards each other, we keep seeing these relationships playing out in front of us on the page. And then it goes down to families, clans, nations. And you see how the people of the Bible get populated. So if this is the case, perhaps we can look at everything that we consider on an individual level, on an individualistic level, through this lens. You know, we think about things on an individual level when it comes to our spiritual lives. Maybe we can look at it through this lens instead of relationships. Whether it has to do with our salvation, our relationship with God, how that plays out, whatever the case. Now, I want to make a disclaimer. Please don't hear me say, don't spend you know, quiet time with God or don't spend your personal time with God. Clearly, that's not what I'm talking about. You know, do spend time with God. Now, let me share uh, what theologian and author Leslie Newbegin, he puts it this way when it comes to relationships. Okay, follow along with me. It follows that this mutual relatedness, this dependence of one on another, is not merely part of the journey toward the goal of salvation, but intrinsic to the goal itself. There is, there can be no private salvation, no salvation that does not involve us with one another. He goes on, in order to receive God's saving revelation, we have to open the door to the neighbor whom he sends as his appointed messenger, and moreover, to receive that messenger not as a temporary teacher or guide whom we can dispense with when we ourselves have learned what is needed, but as one who will permanently share our home. If you've ever been evangelized to, if you've ever had the gospel shared with you, If someone's ever invited you to church, as you might have experienced even today, these are people that once we hear the good news from them, we don't just say, okay, don't need you anymore. It's about my time with God. We're going to permanently share our homes with them. In the calling and the covenant of Abram, we observe unilateral blessing from the Lord. What does that mean? It means one way with no work or obligation on the part of Abram. He doesn't have to do anything to receive these blessings. God just says, I'm going to bless you. And that's it. But the promise of blessing extends to the rest of the world. Do do you see this when we read those, those three verses? In other words, God chooses Abram and his family, but the purpose of choosing him doesn't end with just his blessing. It's not just, I'm going to bless you for no reason. He does it with a purpose. It extends to blessing others. Read with me verses 2 and 3 there. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The flow seems to go, I will bless you. You will be a blessing. I will bless you, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. This kind of happens afterwards. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. So the promise goes from God blessing Abram one way to Abram blessing others also one way. And then, you know, the fine print, God is going to bless those who bless Abram and vice versa. He will curse anyone who treats him with contempt. I remember when I was a lot younger, when I was, you know, again, living in America, um, there was a much older bully who lived in our neighborhood. 
Okay, we lived in like this apartment complex kind of thing. You know, there's a lot of apartments dotted around. It's a little bit of a poorer neighborhood. And there's a bully who just started targeting me for some reason. I've never spoken to him in my life. Never seen him before. Then he just decided, I don't really like the way that this guy looks for whatever reason. Much older than me. He would verbally abuse me, you know, say all sorts of things that I'm sure you guys have heard. You know, he would physically attack me sometimes. And so my friends who would be with me, you know, we're, we're like in year two or year three. And so we're not going to stand up to this year eight kid. And so he's beating us up. We're all trying to like, ah, you know, and we're getting beaten up. And we try to fight back. And he would do these weird things. Like he would, we would be walking along back to our houses and we'd be terrified. We're walking along. And then he'd burst out of the door of this like one apartment complex and just start attacking us. And so we'd be terrified. Now one day, my dad found out what was going on. You know, you come home with enough bloody noses. He, he's like, something's not right. <laughs> he's observant enough, at least that far. And so he asked me what's going on. And you know, I'm not proud. And so uh, I'm not arrogant. I'm willing to tell him. This much older kid's beating me up. You know, I'm sobbing. So he gets me in the car, very quietly, just sits me down in the car, and he starts driving around the neighborhood. And I'm kind of sitting in the back of the car like, oh, what's going to happen? This is pretty scary. I've never seen my dad look like this. He looks very, actually, I have seen my dad look like this. He always looks like this. He's very stony-faced. <laughs> I can't read his emotions. It's very scary. And we're driving really slowly, and he's like, you know, asking, is that him? Is that him? And we eventually found the bully as we're driving around. You know, he wasn't at home. And so, what's he going to do? You know, he pulls up. He's like an old man, right? He's not that old. He waves the bully down. And my dad's English isn't the best, but he tells him to come over. I'm wondering what's going to happen. He's going to curse anyone who treats me with contempt, you know? But he says, get in the car. I'm like, I'm not comfortable with this. I'm not going to sit next to him, you know, but he gets in the car. This guy doesn't know what to do. He's just like an older Korean man saying, get in the car. So he just gets in. And he drives around the corner to an ice cream shop and buys him ice cream. And he doesn't really know how to explain himself, but he tries his best and feeds him ice cream. And I'm very confused slightly disappointed, still feeling the pain from earlier. Then the next day, the bully sees me. He's not bursting out the door anymore. He kind of waves to me, starts treating me nicely until eventually he forgets about me. Now surely, if Abram is being a blessing to others, they're going to bless him rather than treating him with contempt. Right? Like if Abram is buying ice cream for the Egyptians, it'll be a little bit different. But this isn't what takes place. As the Lord has blessed us, we ought to be blessing others. That's just how the Bible defines out humanity in terms of relationships with one another, in togetherness. If we truly believe in the gospel of grace that we talk about here at New Life, if our belief is in a unilateral blessing from God, that we believe that God has saved us through grace, that we haven't done anything to deserve it, it should result in us unilaterally blessing others around us. 
We shouldn't expect any reciprocation. We shouldn't be waiting for it. We should be blessing others. Now you know this isn't the case. Look at my example as a child. No matter how many Christmas specials I watched, no matter how much they tried to influence me with Santa and, you know, ho, ho, ho and everything, they tried to influence me morally, it just couldn't win the battle for me in my heart for more toys for myself. Instead, we tend towards either just ignoring or being apathetic to others in this world if they don't really matter to us, if they're not close to us. Or even worse, if we consider them to be our enemies, we bring curses upon them in the ways that we act and we get them to treat us with contempt. We look out for ourselves and don't trust God. Here's how it plays out in Abram's story, okay? So we didn't read this, but read with me on screen here. Genesis 12, verses 6 to 12. Abram passed through the land to the side of Shechem at the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. He built an altar to the Lord there, and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, Look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. They will kill me but let you live. So what's happened so far is that God has taken Abram to the land that he has promised him. He's promised him this land. He sits him down in this land and he tells him, it's going to be your land. Your offspring is going to possess this land. And Abram immediately leaves the land when a severe famine hits. He leaves. Though God has promised, Abram takes his life into his own hands and decides Ah, the wise thing to do here is to leave and go to Egypt instead. Maybe I can survive there. Verses 13 to 16. Please say you're my sister, so it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. Pretty gross. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, So the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. He treated Abram well because of her, and Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. God has promised children to this man, which means Abram should expect to survive whatever comes his way until he fathers some children. God's promised Not only this, it also means that he should probably protect his wife who will bear these children for him. Love should be self-sacrificial, right? And yet he acts in an extremely self-serving way. Do this so it will go well for me because of you and my life will be spared. What What about Sarai's life? He's caring just about himself and not worried about his wife's safety nor her dignity. He's also entrusting his life and salvation to his wife 
rather than to his God. And he's casting the Egyptians into sin and making them unknowingly act in contempt of him as well. Even though they're bringing so many gifts to Abram, what is that in the face of losing your wife to them? It's contempt. The Bible goes on, but the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, he recognized what was going on, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. Abram's lack of trust results in sin all the way through. And, you know, Pharaoh and the Egyptians kind of act a little bit honorably here. This is kind of strange. But Abram's lack of trust results in sin for everyone and curses upon the people of the earth. We relate to others in kind of misanthropic ways. Rather than blessing them, we bring sin into communal settings. We bring sin. And this results in severe consequences. During lockdown, I got a strange bite or something on my leg, on my left leg. It was terribly itchy, you know, it was, I would scratch it all the time. Laura would tell me not to, but I would still scratch it when she wasn't looking. And it got infected. It got worse and worse. You know, I have a picture. Um, and Bora would insist on seeing the doctor. This isn't a picture of my infection. This is Olympus Mons on Mars. It's a volcano, okay? But it looked very similar to this, okay? I didn't want to, you know, we we're about to have lunch. It started getting worse and worse. My immune system went down, and the dermatologist explained it to me like this months later down the track, okay? He explained, this thing got infected. Your immune system went down. It got worse and worse. When you were in the hospital, when Jonas was being born, you must have contracted scabies, you know? I remember, like, reading, Martin, like, you caught scabies in prison, right? And I never knew how bad scabies were. Very itchy, horrible, you feel like you're going crazy, you know? I understand uh, the biblical thing of, you know, you're just itching and wanting to die, right? And so it got worse and worse until I'm scratching all over my body, and then that got infected again with staph infection all over my body. Just got worse and worse spiraled out of control for months. I couldn't figure out what was wrong. You might have seen me with bandages all over my body during that time if you ran into me. This was my personal sin, right? Because Bora's telling me, don't scratch. And I would wait until she's not looking and then, you know? And then she would tell me, go see a doctor. And I would forget or I would say, I'm too busy. I would make excuses about this. Right? Yeah. And so, if we're doing this, what is the communal consequence here? Eventually, when Jonas is born, if you've ever been around a newborn before, you have to hold him all the time. They can't hold themselves, right? And so, in the middle of the night, Boris is holding Jonas, not sleeping. And I had to quarantine myself in the other room, lest he get infected with staph or scabies or whatever it was. Communal consequences visited our household. So our sin, our lack of trust, has consequences that visit upon more than just us. When we do things, we can expect that it affects other people that we're in relationship with. We're not individuals. We're not 
islands that just exist by themselves. Togetherness means you're part of the body of Christ. And your stuff affects your community around you, your loved ones. Even if you're not part of the body of Christ, the things that you go through, the things that you partake in affect people around you. Abram has his own issues here, okay? When he starts fearing for his life, he has his own issues, yes. And that, you know, he's now at risk of losing his wife as well, but his actions visit consequences upon said wife. And the Egyptians receive severe consequences for their unknowing actions as well. All because Abram could not trust in God's promises to him. When God's promising these things in verses 1 to 3, and when he says blessings and consequences are going to come as well, we can believe him. Now, ironically, in the midst of all this, God's promise-keeping nature is still in view. You can still see it all throughout. Just as he had promised, he visits curses upon those that treat Abram with contempt, even unknowingly. What have the Egyptians done? Did they know that they were committing sin? Did Pharaoh know? No, but God promised. Certainly, if Abram had been a blessing to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians had blessed him, as their behavior suggests that they probably would have, God would have blessed them also, just as he had promised. Now, you might wonder, what does this mean for those of us who are Christians who act without trust in this God? The gospel of grace has saved us, Is there enough grace for me now that I'm saved and still sin? Look at Abram's story. Genesis 15, 1. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. God actually doubles down on his promises. He doesn't cast Abram out. He doesn't visit curses upon Abram. He doubles down on his promises. He reassures Abram knowing that he's fearful. He's seen the way that he acts in fear. And so he brings him in and reassures him. Arm around the shoulder. Don't worry, I'll take care of you. Then Abram actually speaks with God for the first time. This is the first time Abram actually actually voices his concerns to him. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, Look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Talking with God here and voicing his concerns, does it lead to God losing his temper with him? No. God reassures him once again by telling him, Look out at the stars and try to count them. This is the kind of father that he is. Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. At this point, Abram believes the Lord. And Abram's faith leads to God's action of crediting it to him as righteousness. He calls Abram righteous after all this because he believes in the Lord. I can't stress this enough. Faith is the vehicle by which God's credit of righteousness was received. It's faith. Not effort, not Abram working to make something happen like we saw in Genesis 12, but faith. He doesn't do anything else here. 
He believes the Lord and is credited to him as righteousness. And to seal the deal, God goes on to make a covenant with Abram. And he enacts a ceremony which we might not be super familiar with, but it was very well known at the time, involving the carcasses of animals cut in half. So usually, at this time, a covenant was cut in this way where it would involve two parties, okay? They would have these halved, you know, butchered animal carcasses on either side, and they would walk between the carcasses of the animals together, pledging to keep the covenant that they're agreeing to. They're saying, we will do this, otherwise, whoever doesn't keep their end of the covenant will be cut in two like these animals. Verse 17 tells us, When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. This is God, you know, appearing in this form, but after Abram is put into a deep sleep, Abram is put into a deep sleep like we saw in week one with Adam. God passes between the animals by himself, So not only is it a unilateral blessing, it's a unilateral covenant as well. Because Abram's asleep, he can't do anything. And God passes through on his own. Now we know we're still looking at Abram's actions from Genesis 12. We still see it. They contrast sharply with those of the Son of God. When we look to Jesus, Jesus receives the promises of his Father And he trusts in him all the way to the point of death in his own body. And in fact, he is the covenant himself, guaranteeing the promised blessing for the peoples of the earth, for the families of the world, lest he be taken apart. If you read through the entire story of Abram in Genesis, there's this tension that just develops all the way through. He desires a son. The Lord promises a son to him. But Abram lives in this constant fear that this won't happen. Like, we relate to Abram in so many more ways than we think when we talk about our own faith, when we talk about what God has promised us, and we might not fully believe him. We say that we do, but we don't fully trust him. And Abram is fearful whether due to his age, you know, you can kind of understand when you're reading his age, or due to external danger to his life. But here in our final reading in Genesis 15, we see a really great high point in Abram's story, in his faith, as he believes God's promise to him, illustrated only by the starry night sky. And this becomes instructive for the people of God all throughout history. This faith that's credited to him as righteousness, it gets referred to several times in the New Testament as well. Everyone can look back and say, remember Abram. He believes just by looking out at the night sky and it was credited to him as righteousness. You now, new life, you have the promise of God illustrated by the death and resurrection of his son. You don't need to look just at the night sky. You can look to any cross. You can look within yourselves and see it's recorded and written for you in your Bibles as well with every scripture pointing towards this that you might always find a reminder of this great promise and look forward together to the return of his son. So now, as we look towards Christmas, now that you've freely received this gift of grace, 
we can give freely, unilaterally, with open hands to those around you this Advent season. You've been blessed to be a blessing. I encourage you to carry this out. Let's pray. Father, when we consider the work of your hands, when we look out at this world that you've created with just mere words, and when we look up at the night sky and see the stars shining, we're reminded of the great many promises that you've given to the people of God all throughout history. And what greater promise than the promise of your son Jesus that we find all throughout the Old Testament people looking forward to, the birth of this Messiah, the birth of the faithful one, the Savior who will come and ransom Israel and save us all. We look to your Son, the carrier of this great faith, the one that grants us faith as well by his actions. If only we would believe in his work that it could be credited to us as righteousness as well. And it's a constant battle, Lord. You know this. When you observe our lives, when you walk with us, you know, Lord, we struggle at this by external circumstances, by the internal turmoil of our own hearts as we consider your great promises, as we consider our own actions. Father, we pray that you would double down on your blessings towards us, that you would double down on your promises towards us, that you would save us from ourselves, that you would help us, Lord, to receive the blessings that you have for us not through our work, not through our own efforts, but through the faith that you give to us. This Christmas season, Lord, would you help us, Lord, to receive this grace as the greatest gift of all. And Father, we ask that as we receive this blessing, we be able to extend blessing upon all those around us, that they might be able to treat us not with contempt, but with blessing as well, that you might visit many blessings upon their, their households too. We want for many to come to know your name. We want for many to live this life eternal with you. We want, Lord, to share in this life together as we invite them permanently into our homes that we will share together with you. We thank you, Lord, that you invite us in as sons and daughters rather than casting us out as orphans, as those who have forsaken you. Thank you, Lord, that you welcome us in you love us. Would you help us to love you and love one another as well? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.